Today's program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn, New American Cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. This is the Heritage Radio Network and we're broadcasting from Roberta's in Bushwick at 261 Moore Street. My guest today, I'm really excited about this, um, is Joel Macauer. He is the chairman and executive editor of the Green Biz Group, a producer of greenbiz.com. And for 20 years, Joel has been a well-respected voice on business, the environment, and the bottom line. He is executive editor of the acclaimed website greenbiz.com, which I urge everyone to go and check, check out, and its sister sites, uh, conferences and research, all produced by Green Biz Group, of which he is co-founder and chairman. He's also lead author of the annual State of Green Business Report, and he hosts the State of Green Business Forum, the Green Biz Innovation Forum, and other events. Joel serves as a senior strategist for Green Order. Oh, man. Talk about overuse of a word. A sustainability management consultancy and is co-founder of Clean Edge. Sorry, Joel. Um, a clean tech research firm. You're just a fabulous guy in every other respect, but I mean, really. Um, he is author of more than a dozen books, including Strategies for the Green Economy, and we all need those. Um, and he also writes Two Steps Forward, readjoel.com, a popular blog on green business, clean technology, and green marketing. Welcome to the program. Thank Thanks. you, Katie. I really appreciate you coming. Um, I'm excited. First of all, your site was new to me. I've never seen it before. And so uh, I want to start off by um, having you talk a little bit about Green Biz, how long you've been doing it, what you monitor. Um, I loved the articles that you wrote about the subject we're going to discuss in a moment, the sustainability initiatives of McDonald's. Um, you know, just give us a little thumbnail of, of what that's all about, because there aren't that many um, organizations like yours out there. I know As You Sow, I know a couple others, but that's about it. Well, um, yeah, As You Sow is a, is a nonprofit advocacy group. Right. They're a little uh, different uh, from you, but they lean on businesses to become green, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and we're a media company. Uh, right. We're, we're not an advocacy group. We're not nonprofit. We have been reporting uh, on this stuff for a long time. The greenbiz.com dates back to 1999, but I go back 10 years before that wow. in writing uh, uh, books, newsletters, and I, I used to publish something called the Green Business Letter um, starting in 1991. So I've been for uh, about 25 years now focusing on uh, corporate environmental strategy um, and increasingly with, with clean technology, which is to say how companies are integrating sustainability or environmental thinking into their operations and doing it in a way that's not just about green marketing, that's not just about reputation, but actually is creating value, reducing risk, uh, and in some cases simply uh, allowing them to stay in business, the right to operate. Wow. That's fascinating. I mean, just I'm thinking back 25 years. I don't remember. I mean, I'm you know probably a similar age. I don't remember that there was a whole lot of thinking about green biz, to be honest with you, 25 years ago. I mean, we were all excited about being able to, you know, get raspberry vinegar in the supermarket. I mean, <laughs> well, you know, a lot of this has been under, been under the radar for a long time. But, but you think back to 1989, uh, the company we're going to talk about, McDonald's, uh, was under heavy pressure around uh, 
styrofoam clamshells, and they, they made a big commitment in 1990 to uh, eliminate those, and that made big news. And that was one, just one small part of the equation of what companies were dealing with back then. Uh-huh. Um, and a lot of it has been, in fact, continues to this day, one of the great unreported or underreported mainstream media activities. Most of what companies are doing simply is not known. It's not public. The media doesn't talk about it. No, they don't. And I, I want to point to another uh, big initiative, since we are going to be talking about the um, – I'll just announce the program now. We are going to be talking about the sustainability initiatives around beef that McDonald's just announced, uh, hoping to switch over to a more sustainable beef buying program by 2016. It remains to be seen how feasible that is. Um, But they were also uh, the people who hired Temple Grandin to design uh, improved animal welfare, animal handling facilities in their uh, producers and so they and they didn't get a lot of credit for that either, I have to say. I mean, I'm not a big fan of McDonald's, but I have to say that when somebody like McDonald's puts their money where their mouth is, um, stuff happens. And so let's go on and uh, talk about this initiative that McDonald's is uh, that was in the press. It wasn't widely reported, but it was certainly picked up by The Huffington Post and um, certainly grist and you know all of the usual players on the progressive food side of the movement. Um, what is it that they're thinking is going to happen? I mean, like by 2016, Joel, really? They're going to start buying sustainably raised beef? Tell us what that's all about and what will happen if it actually works. Sure. Well, this is a story that we actually broke. Uh, Huffington Post so. and CNBC and everybody else picked it from, up from us. And I've been tracking this for most of 2013. And uh, McDonald's decided that they didn't want to put out a press release that they would sort of put the story out through GreenBiz, which was sort of fun for us. Um, and the story is that uh, they are looking to not just source sustainable beef. We'll talk about that in a second, mm-hmm. what that actually means. Right. But, but they want to make all of their beef sustainable. And that's one part of a broader initiative to make all of their purchases, um, from potatoes to cardboard to to uh, cups, uh, sustainable in some right. fashion. And, you know, and some of that they're already doing. This isn't starting from zero. As you said, they've been working on things like animal welfare. Or they committed 20 years ago not to uh, you know, buy beef from the Amazon biome. Um, That's so, right. So they set out on this journey to buy. And they, the commitment that they said is that by 2016, they're going to start buying some sustainable beef. So two years from now, they're going to, you know, 23 months from now, they're going to have purchased some sustainable beef. And then at that time, they hope to be able to announce a, a bigger target over you know, when they want to get to some other number and eventually to all sustainable beef. Right. So they'll, they'll create a series of benchmarks depending, I assume, on how uh, slowly or quickly the industry follows their initiative. Um, I wanted to um, just address the fact, like in terms of the beef issue, um, before we get into what defining sustainability is. Um, but, you know, like last summer, I'm sure you saw this, Chipotle had a big, there was a lot of press around Chipotle because they were unable to find enough sustainable beef to um, use in their franchise, which is just a mere fraction of McDonald's. And so, I mean, for me, as somebody who really follows the industry closely, 
you know, this is just an incredible sea change. And, and it's something I've been predicting and something I've been talking about to the beef industry for a couple of years. Like, you have got to get on board, buddies, or you're going to be pushed out of the way. So um, let's talk about a little bit about how they're going to define sustainability and then how that's going to play out with producers. What What are they doing to, given that they buy beef from so many different sources and they're in every country in the world, how are they going to make those benchmarks, those particular sustainability benchmarks? How, who's defining that? Who's involved well, the, in that? Yeah, the, I mean, that's, this is a three-part series we did, and it gets It was into, excellent, uh, by the way. Uh, thank you. It gets into a lot of detail about yeah. their supply chain. Um, I mean, they buy... Uh, they don't buy beef from, from ranchers. They buy beef from hundreds of thousands that come. It started hundreds of thousands of ranchers and uh, feed, feeders and, and stockhouses sure. and others that eventually get to where they buy beef from, which are from manufacturers of Packers. patties, the frozen yeah. patties. Um, so they decided very early on that they didn't want to and probably couldn't define sustainable beef. As big as McDonald's is, they only buy between one and a half and 2% of the beef in any country where they do business. So they're a pretty small player, not able to really move the needle on that. So they, they uh, in 2010, in November of 2010, they convened, they and Walmart and JBS, one of the large beef suppliers, right. and Cargill, one of the large... Uh, uh, suppliers uh, and packers. Suppliers, yep. yeah, exactly. And, and others convened about 350 people from all over the world that represented the, the beef value chain or the supply chain to Denver to hold a global roundtable on sustainable beef. And, or, or, uh, and, and out of that, they formed this organization. Actually, it was called the Global Conference on Sustainable Beef. And out of that, formed an organization called the Global Roundtable on Sustainable Beef. I think it's grsbeef.org right. if you want to look it up. Yeah. And... Um, so they've set out on this journey to develop standards. Now, they developed the first part of standards, which are called principles and criteria of what it means to be sustainable beef. So they're right now they're being distributed to the members for comment around February 1st or March 1st, I guess. They're going to go out for public comment, and, so, uh, and they hope to finalize these at another meeting of this global conference of sustainable beef in Sao Paulo, Brazil, in August. But even then, there's not going to be a single standard. What they're going to do is hope that each region, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, uh, South America, North America, come up with their own standards, their own organizations to verify and certify, their own schemes for doing this. And so uh-huh. it's not going to be a global standard, and there's reasons for that which we can get to. Yes, we will get to them, and let's do that right now. <laughs> I mean, because to me, it seems an almost insurmountable problem. And then when I was taking notes on your um, on your excellent articles, um, I I really was very uh, curious about how you 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 um, offered a couple of scenarios. Uh, for example, um, you know, if they vertically integrated their operations, thus they would raise the cattle and they would send it to slaughter. They would pack it. They would make patties, and that and that to me is kind of dangerous because then you get into sort of a monopolization of the cattle industry which is already pretty monopolized by the four big packers. And I know you know who those people are. It's like Cargill, it's Tyson, it's um, uh, National Beef and JBS. Um, And then there was another thing that you brought up um, about certificates uh, as a way to reward companies for producing sustainable beef. But then I was thinking to myself, 
Well, with that many people involved in the supply chain, how could you possibly verify that? And then one of your sources said, quote, there could be a scenario where that burger I just ate wasn't necessarily from a sustainable source, but you've covered it in some fashion. And I I really didn't understand that because to me, it's like you can say sustainable and it's really become a word that's one of those buzzwords, almost like green. Forgive me for saying that because I know you were a pioneer, but... Um, you know, it's, it, we call it greenwashing, right? And so couldn't they just do the same thing with sustainability and say, well, you know, it's not actually sustainable, but it's kind of in line with what we sort of want. And I mean, I'm not, I just, that part to me was very fuzzy. And yeah. I know it's, I know we're far from getting to those standards, but how, how do you think they will end up um, arriving at some consensus where it is a verifiable uh, label that people can count on? Well, it's a really good question, Katie, and you're right about the overuse of green and sustainable and the buzzwords and the greenwash. Um, but what I think is remarkable about the McDonald's story is um, how much they, just the fact that they put this out there last week. Yeah. Uh, that signaled that they not, I mean, because they, they very easily could have done what most companies do, which is experiment in the background and do a little here and a little bit of there. Right. I mean, Levi Strauss did this with organic cotton, where they'd buy one or two percent year over year, and then they didn't talk about it. They didn't even want to put it out there. Um, and, and there's been lots of examples of that. But they put it out there at McDonald's around sustainable beef, and I think they signal that they want this to be an industry-wide initiative. They want people to watch. They want people to hold them to that. They want people to hold their competitors to that. Right. Um, so I think that's kind of remarkable. Now, as far as those various schemes, uh, first of all, I don't think I suggested at all that there'd be some vertically integrated company. Uh, I, you know, it just it was somebody that I think it was a quote that I, I just didn't give it an attribution. I'm sorry, but yeah. Okay, that's okay. Uh, and I did talk about sort of an example in, in sustainable palm oil where, right. uh, it, you know, you can't always guarantee that that particular, you know, gallon or barrel or whatever of palm oil came from a sustainable source. But there are mechanisms, and we see that in carbon trading and other things where you can, you can uh, someone who is doing that, creating that sustainable product can get credit for it in the marketplace. The buyer of that can somehow be acknowledged that they're buying this stuff, even though that that thing that you just ate, that burger in this particular case, may not be the one. I mean, right now, if you buy uh, renewable energy through your local utility, um, you're not necessarily, and they're, and they're going for wind or solar or, or hydroelectric or some right. other non-carbon-based uh, uh, electricity source, and you pay for that, whether you pay the same rate or pay extra, it doesn't matter. The electricity that comes to your house to run your television or computer isn't necessarily that green electron. You're paying to have green electrons put into the system, and you're increasing the demand for that, even though the specific electrons you get, there's no way of knowing. And mm-hmm. I think that's analogous to what the beef here, that, that, that there will be some market mechanisms to, uh, to buy these things and to get credit for it, even though, again, that burger may not be, you know, specifically come from a sustainable cow. Uh, over time... That will become more and more the norm if this succeeds. Right. But it's going to take time. 
Oh, but you have to start somewhere, and I think that's what they want to do. Well, I I mean, I have to say, like I said, I'm not a huge fan of McDonald's, but I recognize what they are, and I'm just so filled with admiration that their leadership is taking up the cudgels this way. And, you know, of course, we all hope that Burger King and Wendy's and the rest of the, you know, Arby's and all the rest of them follow suit. I, you know, it would be sort of hard not to, given some of the research that you cited showed that aside from affordability, convenience, et cetera, two of the most important things on consumers' minds was where their animal is, or where their beef is coming from, or their food is coming from, and whether or not it's, quote, yeah, I guess clean would be the word, you know, antibiotic-free, hormone-free. And we're not going to get into that because I know it's not your thing. But um, actually, you know what we're going to do, Joel, is take a 30-second sponsor drop now. But people, stay with us uh, with Joel McHour, um, the publisher of greenbiz.com, et cetera, et cetera. This is a great conversation, Joel. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll be right back in just a second. The following program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit TabardIn.com. We're back. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights with me, your host, Katie Kiefer. And on the line with me today is Joel Mackauer, who has written a series of three fascinating articles uh, and who broke the story about McDonald's um, committing to sustainable practices uh, in the coming years, starting 2016. So, um, Joel, I want to backtrack for just a second, and then we're going to talk about international, sort of other international initiatives that um, you quoted in your story, you you mentioned in your story, um, Ireland and some other places, and I thought it would be interesting to talk about how this is playing out around the world. But um, I do want to say one thing about this, and that is being, as I said, an industry um, follower of the you know livestock industry in this country, I go to a lot of um, conferences, and I want to tell you, man, I, you know, the idea of anyone going sustainable is so far from their minds. Like, So what I wanted to ask you was, when they had the, gl- the Global Roundtable, did they include uh, National Cattlemen's Beef Association or the American Meat Institute or any of the big trade orgs? Uh, in that those conversations, or will that be after they decide what these guidelines are and then send them out for public comment? Are those the comments that you're hoping to uh, get? When- uh, NCBA was there for sure. I'm not. Uh, I don't have a, the participant list. As I said, there are 350 okay. participants from around the world. But I know that a number of trade groups were there, and NCBA has been at the table at this from the get-go. And, ha- and ha- do you have a sense of how they've responded to these ideas? I mean, are they on board? Because I'm telling you, like the idea of phasing antibiotics out, I-, I cannot tell you, fighting tooth and nail for four decades on that, and there is just barely, barely any progress. Yeah. You know, I tried to interview NCBA's president for this and um, <laughs> didn't get a response. Now, it was over the holidays, so I don't, I don't want to damn him for that. No. The McDonald's people and... Uh, Cameron Brewitt, who's the sustain- chief sustainability officer at JBS mm-hmm. uh, USA, and who's the president of the Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef, uh, said actually that they were surprised that uh, how much the NCBA was coming around. And in fact, uh, the president, forgive me, I don't have his name okay. uh, on the tip of my tongue, uh, was actually sort of saying interesting and, and positive things about this. That's why I wanted to talk to him to get his reaction. 
You know, you, you talked about the fact that you, know, you go to conferences and you hear about the industry groups and that sustainability seems the furthest thing from their mind. What was interesting about this gathering in Denver in 2010 and, and the conversation since is that uh, so many of the people, this was sort of a surprise to the, the people who organized this, mm-hmm. so many of the farmers and cattlemen and others there uh, thought that they already were sustainable because, oh, you know, this is a way of life for them and it's oh, not yeah. just a business. They, some of these are multi-generational uh, uh, ranches and, you know, they they're feel that they're stewards of the land and that they are the embodiment of sustainability. It's just that you know, they pasture land management is you know one part of it. And they feel they're doing that, so they're therefore sustainable, or maybe they're uh, you know doing some biodigesting of, of manure or something else. Mm-hmm. And, and and everybody's got a little piece of it. But I think that's one of the challenges: is how do you and the opportunities? How do you take the best of what everybody's doing and find you know what is the comprehensive standard? What is the the you know the the thing that everyone sort of agrees to are right. the minimum requirements to be really called sustainable sustainable. Well, and also who's going to pay for it? Because I mean, having a like a microbe digester, you know, something like that on your you know on your two thousand head cattle ranch, if you have as big a one as that, or if you have a smaller one, you know, like those kind of questions, like somehow because I I really I do talk a lot to um, people who are in the business, and I recognize that they work really hard to do what they're doing. And they work really hard for not a lot of money. Like there is not a big margin in livestock ag unless you're a very, very big player. And, you know, for these smaller guys, especially in the cattle branch of the industry, um, you know, some of these requirements are going to put them out of business. And so there has to be, to my mind, there has to be some mechanism in place that helps them along, including having consumers agree that if they want antibiotics phased out or they want beta agonist, you know, growth promotants phased out, then they have to pay a couple of cents more a pound. And there has to be a bit of a compact here. Um, I'm just going off on one of my favorite tangents, but a bit of a compact between the consumer and the producer. Because otherwise, it's just you're asking them to bear a burden they don't really have the wherewithal to bear and shouldn't be asked to if they're not going to be recompensed appropriately. So they're, they're, they're end of the lesson. Sorry about that. But um. <laughs> no, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Katie, on, on all of that around the consumer's you know, they want what they want, and they, but they don't want to pay for it. That's yeah. a whole other show, and, I, and right. I wrote a book in 1989 called The Green Consumer, and I've, I've got l- lots of rants of my own about that. But Excellent. I think to your earlier point about costs and all of that and putting people out of business, one of the things that gives me hope for this initiative and, and also a number of the other people I talked to for these stories we did in Green Biz is that a lot of these kinds of sustainability initiatives, they get the produ- they get the uh, you know, the retailers or, you know, whether it's Walmart or McDonald's, right. and then they get the NGOs and they get some others together, and, and then they, le- they come up with some standards which they then impose on the supply chain. Yeah, that was a this great was point a case, in your piece, yeah. This was a case where the, they brought from the get-go the ranchers, the 50 head, the 2,000 head, to, you know, to the table at the beginning of this whole process. Right. And, and those guys are... Not every one of them, but the, they seem bought into this. They get that this is good for them. It's good for their, their the products that they sell, and it's ultimately good for the market. Mm-hmm. But here's the you know here's I think one of the things you have to look at. We haven't really talked about why McDonald's is doing this in the first place. Yeah, let's is, hear is it. it. You know, <laughs> they know you know beef for them is one of four growth platforms for them. First of all, it's their iconic 
ingredient. Of course. For, you know, when you think of, you know, McDonald's, what do you think? You think of Synonymous of burger, right, exactly. Yeah, and, you know, and they want to sell more. They have plans to sell more beef in the future. And they realize that given the way beef is raised today, given the pressures, the planetary pressures, the consumer pressures, mm-hmm. the regulatory pressures that, uh, that are on uh, not just beef, but on in- uh, food and ag in general, and industry in general, that they simply may not be able to provide the, the amount of beef that they would like to and plan to sell. For them, this is about sustainability in the largest sense of the word, which is their ability to, to be a viable business going forward. Right. So that's, that plus consumer interest, that plus energizing their you know, 34,500 owner-operators, you know, that you know, they see this as, as, as something they need to do. One more thing, then I'll stop. No, no, no please. It's very interesting. They, you talk about cost, and is this going to cost more? Who's going to pay for it? In a lot of cases, the things that need to be done actually save money. It's about efficiency. Right. It's about, now, yeah, biodigester, other things like that are going to cost their investments, and, and those are, I don't think anyone's going to impose on farmers that they have to, on ranchers that they have to do these or, or, or go out of business. That's where the conversation and the standard, uh, you know, sort of horse trading, if you will, right. uh, comes into play. But I think that everyone's going into this with their eyes wide open that this is something that they need to do. They have to figure out together if it's going to work. And that's what's so encouraging about what's going on here. Right. And as somebody who follows Green Biz, I would think you would see this, uh, to go off on yet another tangent, as an enormous opportunity for venture capital and for people to get into the business, basically, of fecal engineering. I mean, let's call it let's call a spade a spade, because that's one of the biggest issues in livestock agriculture is what to do with waste and it can no longer be sprayed on fields there's just too much and uh you know when you're dealing with like a cargill plant for instance i visited cargill plant a few years ago my listeners are bored to death hearing about this but they were processing 4500 cattle a day in 16 hours and that was a lot of waste and they had one of those big digester things they didn't have an egg but they had a very complex system it was really impressive um but the thing is, is that I thought to myself, what an opportunity for somebody, you know, who's going into the environmental sciences or something like that to put together some companies that basically deal with this and well, show that, people what to do and build the infrastructure or whatever it is that's needed to be done to manage this problem. Yeah, that's one of the exciting parts of this is that it's jobs. So many of these things are opportunities. So many of these things right. are jobs. And, and it's, you know, people talk about clean tech. 60 Minutes ran a thing a week ago uh, yesterday that said clean tech crash. It was over. And it was, it was it's, it, they almost have to retract it because it was so wrong that there was so much <laughs> going stupid. on. And, and it's, 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 some of this isn't even called, it shouldn't even be called clean tech anymore. It's right. just tech. This is just, you know, what we do every day with, with our stuff in terms of making things more efficient, making things uh, more traceable and, and, and on and on. Right. Uh, there's a lot of opportunity here, and I think that's also an important part of this story. I think it's great. God, you are such a fabulous guest. Now, we have about, f- well, we can, we have as long as we want, actually. This is an internet radio program. I could talk to you all day if I wanted to. Well, not quite, but um, I wanted, one of the things you brought up in your uh, one of the articles was um, Ireland. And I thought that was a really interesting part of your story about how Ireland is kind of rebranding its agriculture. They're really working hard on these sustainability issues, if I may use that word yet one more time. Um, Can you talk a little bit about sort of the international, where the international players are in terms of like advancing the cause of more efficient, more uh, environmentally friendly uh, practices? Sure. I think there's a lot going on around the world outside the U.S. And um, 
Ireland is one place where uh, they have uh, uh, realized that um, a lot of commodities that they raise there, uh, and it is one of the agricultural areas, mm-hmm. and a, a huge uh, percentage, I think uh, close to a third of the land in Ireland is, is, is uh, food and ag, um, they, they want to be the sustainability uh, uh, sustainable food hub of of of, of Europe certainly, mm-hmm. and so uh, their food board and, and others are, are are really moving this forward. Um, and in terms of how they can, uh, they develop something called the uh, uh, SAI platform on beef, and um, they've uh, I know McDonald's invested in one of the companies called Don Meats, which is one of the major beef suppliers. To actually set up a cattle farm so that they could understand what it takes to raise cattle. This mm-hmm. is a processor uh, that has hadn't done that, and and then out of that to try and really understand um, uh, sustainable beef and, and what it takes. But what's interesting is that the Department of Agriculture in Ireland um, has committed to uh, sustainability for a lot of their products. Uh, Bob Langer, the head of sustainability at McDonald's, said, you know, if you talk to the Department of Agriculture for Ireland. They're determined to have sustainable beef be a big part of the production system. And, you know, it may already be sustainable. We don't know because we don't have a standard and haven't been able to validate it yet. But I show a picture of McDonald's CEO uh, visiting farmers in Ireland because they see that as a model. uh, Because Ireland said that by 2016, 100% of exports, food exports from from, uh, a number of, uh, of industries will be sustainable. But the other one is Brazil. Right. Brazil, you know, which is... On the uh, protecting the Amazon yeah. and has created rules around that uh, has really one of the first uh, countrywide roundtables in sustainable beef, and it's become seen as a model for for other countries. Mm-hmm. And how do you bring together the partners to transform the way the industry works? And they too have been at the forefront of this. In Europe, each country has its own uh, things, including the United States, about where they're sort of advanced. That's what this global roundtable on sustainable beef that uh, Walmart and McDonald's and others helped form wants to do, which is to bring all of these together and find the best practices and then translate them for each region because each region is different. Yes, you point out that each region is a microclimate, has different uh, you know, parameters in terms of climate, in terms of forage, in terms of you know, what's growing around there, et cetera. I thought that was a really interesting point about this, and too. Even and even between, in the United States, between Montana and Georgia, there's right. huge differences. That's, it's, it's, it really are microclimates. Yeah, no, it's it's a very complex uh, initiative, and I guess maybe we should leave it here for now, Joel, but um, I want you to have a moment to sort of promote uh, greenbiz.com, uh, talk about other stuff you're going to be working on, and uh, point people in the right direction in terms of where they can learn more about uh, the global uh, roundtable on sustainable beef. Um, so can you do that for us now? Sure. Well, first of all, greenbiz.com, visit the, the stories we're talking about and all stories that we publish every day. And those day are three, by are the way, three-part three piece, right. Uh, so you can three it, just come and get it. Um, uh, on January 21st, we're going to be releasing our annual State of Green Business Report, cool. which is a massive undertaking that looks at all of the things that we write about every day mm-hmm. and takes the measure saying, is this actually moving the needle on the sustainability issues, or is it just a lot of... Lot of uh, talk and not a lot of action and the answer <laughs> is it's it's mixed and so we'll talk about what's going well what's going not going well on climate energy water waste and other issues um and then all this comes together at a green biz forum which is our one of our annual events that will be in phoenix uh in in february february 18th to 20th 
where we'll be bringing together, uh, we sort of bring that State of Green Business report to life with a lot of panels and speakers, and we'll have a panel that has McDonald's, JBS, oh, wow. uh, WWF you know, on the main stage talking about uh, you know, digging deeper into this thing that we've been talking about, about how and why they did what they're doing and where this is all going. So we really try to bring not just the what of sustainable business, but the how and the why, because those mm-hmm. are what really make these stories interesting. Absolutely. Well, you've been a fantastic guest. I hope you'll come back again and again. Um, for instance, I'd love to you know, book you for <laughs> a month from now when we can talk about your massive report on Green Biz. Um, but this has been terrific. Thank you so much. And again, it's greenbiz.com. Uh, check out these three articles about sustainability and McDonald's. Uh, they were just such an eye-opener to me. And in the, rea- the reality of the world is, is that you know we're not going to be able to feed the world on just a few happy cows at Polyface Farm, right? Am I right, Joel? It's going to take a whole industry. (laughs) Yeah, it is. So thank you so much for joining me. Thanks to my sponsor, Tabard Inn in Washington, and thanks to my engineer, Joe Galarraga. We'll see you next week with another fascinating episode of What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. We'll be talking about dietary supplements with Marion Nessel. Thanks so much for listening. See you next week. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.